if you're directing a movie, if you want to tell stories through film, you cannot just be the moody artist who everybody needs to leave you alone. You you can't be that way. You got to be. You got to engage people, and you got to communicate. You have. It's your job to communicate what you think this thing can be and why it can be successful. If you can't do that, nobody else is going to do it for you. are listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. If you enjoy what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is filmmaker Kirby Atkins. Kirby has written feature film scripts for Robert De Niro, Miramax, and 20th Century Fox. He has worked with some of the most recognizable names in cinema across animation and visual effects, such as Sony Animation, Weta Digital, and Steven Spielberg. His short film, Mutt, won Best Animated Short at the Hollywood Film Festival, and he has directed the TV show The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius for Nickelodeon. In 2019, Kirby wrote and directed the first New Zealand-China film group co-production of Mosley, which was nominated for Best Animated Feature Film at the 2019 Asia-Pacific Screen Awards, the Burbank International Film Festival, and the 2020 Ottawa International Animation Festival, among others. The film will be released worldwide this December 2021. Kirby wrote the screenplay and plays the title role, starring with the all-Kiwi cast of John Reese davies Lucy Lawless, Reese Darby, and Tamura Morrison. Kirby is a thoughtful filmmaker with wonderful insights. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kirby Atkins, welcome, man. It's so great to have you on the Act One podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, uh, you and I were just kind of talking briefly. We, I have known of you. I've known of the Kirby Atkins because we both went to the same, uh, university. We at different times, um, I'm, I'm significantly younger than you. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I was a couple of years after you and, and, but I kept hearing your name. I kept hearing your name and, uh, we ended up having some mutual friends over the years. And so I think I connected with you over Facebook or something. And so, and it's just great. It's just great to finally meet you face to face over Zoom. So it's fantastic. Yeah, it's finally good to see. I've heard I've heard your name. I'm the same. I've heard your name for a long time. And and people always say, Well, if you're in Southern California, you need to hook up with Jimmy Duke. So, so I <laughs> finally day. done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. Um, so let's just kind of start a little bit back um in terms of, of um I, I want to spend the bulk of our conversation obviously today talking about this fantastic uh new film that you've created uh, this tremendous labor of love mosley and uh so we're going to talk about that but i'd love to just get a little background of you for our audience were you born and raised in the south like me uh yeah, sort of my dad was a, a museum curator all over all over the country so uh in uh, we were but he ca- he came from west tennessee and so i have grandparents and family uh, in west tennessee and so i always had sort of roots there but uh, we ended up traveling because of the museum to texas and ended up in california we ended up in the bay area so yeah but i uh so I I had that creative stuff going on all the time. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, uh, I would get off of, from school and go to the museum and get to sit in on figure drawing classes that my dad was having. And so I, I saw naked people when I was 13 years old. 
they were they weren't great looking naked people, but I learned to draw, right? And so, and so it, it, you would you would you would just look at the paintings and you would just do that kind of old classic style of just basically trying to emulate what you saw. Well, yeah, but it was. I mean, I I guess the education just from an early age, the fact that you're just surrounded by good art uh, uh, it yeah. makes you. Uh, and so I could draw. I mean, I couldn't, I, I could draw before I could spell really well, you know? And wow. so, uh, I, I've always been drawing, always been, uh, storytelling. I always make, made my own comic books. I always wrote my own little horrible novels when I was <laughs> 11 years old and things like that. So I was always, I couldn't imagine doing anything, you know, as I grew up and started having to be a responsible person. Uh, I did a lot of other stuff. I, I, I was a teacher for a while. I, I taught, I did drug rehab for a while, but it's one of those things when you're in your twenties and you're going, you better get to it. What do you want to do? And I'm like, I know what I want to do. I just, I just don't, I just not sure I, anybody's going to give me a chance to do it. And so my wife and I were both teachers. We, uh, we quit our jobs, moved out to California, sold everything we had, moved out to California. And I just, I just jumped into animation. It was just the, it wasn't that I was necessarily uh, wanted to do animation particularly, but there was a big opportunity in the industry at that point. It was around the time Toy Story came out and uh, people were figuring, just figuring out how to use that medium, how to use that art form. And so uh, it was the wild west out there in regard to CGI and, and everything just starting to come together uh, as far as uh, using that medium to make films. And so I was, I was out there around the uh, right after Toy Story and I went to Portland, Oregon and ended up going to uh, working at Leica Studios, which is, was the old Will Vinton Studios. And uh, then I ended up in Texas working for Nickelodeon, directing the Jimmy Neutron TV show. I, I sold a script to uh, uh, to Robert De Niro of all people, he he uh, never met him, but he read and bought my my script, which was turned through subsequent rewrites and handed off to uh, different directors, and was turned into Hamburger. And I, I basically looked at the final draft of it, and I thought this res- does not even resemble what I had initially wrote, and wow. and that started me into a career basically of writing films that and getting paid to write films that never got made yeah. apparently happens <laughs> most of the time, right? Most, most, most of the most, time. That's right. Yeah. Most of the time these films don't get made. They go through this extremely arduous process of, of being written and rewritten and uh, all kinds of politics are involved and you can make a living doing that. And I, uh, and so I was used to that. And yet I, that's when something sort of occurred to me that I felt like I've got a few stories that I'm willing to give away for money and watch them get destroyed. But I got to have a few stories that I uh, don't want to compromise on, that I, I want to see turned into the actual thing that I want them to be and won't, and won't compromise on that, even at the uh, risk of them never getting made. And Mosley was that. Uh, Mosley was something that I'm like, I want to do this. I want to direct it. I want to do it the way I, I want to do it. I want to make the film I always wanted to see. I always wished that somebody would make. Uh, 
and uh and in that regard it it it's sort of it was an odd process to where it finally came together you know and i and i was able to do it but i I think about like uh i think it's c.s lewis and tolkien that said nobody's writing the sort of books that we want to read so i guess we'll just write them ourselves you know and that was sort of my mentality with this is like there's a there's a movie i want to see and nobody's making it and so i guess i'll just start making it myself and maybe I'll get to actually make it, but I didn't really wait for anybody to give me money. I just started uh, actually cutting the film together, making an animatic uh, with storyboards, getting uh, recording all the voices myself. Uh, and, uh, and that was actually how the film came together was that it, uh, I didn't hand over a script to the New Zealand film commission. It was because uh, Mosley is the first, uh, co-production between New Zealand Film Commission and China Film Group. And I don't know that anybody ever read a script, but I, because I had, I did have a script, but they watched the, I had cut the whole film together basically through storyboards. Wow. So uh, they just watched that and it got approved for the co-production about for about $20 million. Okay, yeah. so before we... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I may be getting it. No, 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 it's good. No, this is all really good. I want to get that stuff. I just want to kind of go back to... Wow, that is fascinating. That sounds like such an um, interesting process. So so bef- how in terms of how you even got there, though, because you said yourself that you didn't really... This desire to be an animator wasn't this thing that was, you know, animating you for the majority of your early life. You just... So when you were drawing it, it was just a hobby, right? Like you weren't, uh, you weren't pursuing it as a, as a profession. When was it really just out of necessity? Did it, did it kind of the switch go off for you about being an actual animator? It was always just a means to an end. I mean, I know animators. I have, I'm good friends with animators who are the best in their field and they are in love with animation and the art of movement and an exaggeration and all this and caricature and all these other sorts of things. That was never me. I was, I was interested in stories and I, but I, but I went and I could write and I had, my imagination was just full. I would take long walks and long showers and just think and connect all these different stories and characters and things like that. And, but I was just lucky enough to where I could also draw. So it was just, natural for me to uh be because i uh, to create what in my mind was the final form of the thing in some in a cruder way obviously because when you can draw and storyboard you can kind of make your movie you can kind of just do it and it it's a cruder version of it but uh it, it doesn't have all the polish to it but if you can get an executive or whoever to sit down and watch something they're more willing to watch something than they are to read something yeah and and so if you can have them watch something and even get so into it that they forget they're watching storyboards they kind of forget that hey these are just storyboards because they're drawn in then you win because then everything else after that is just about making the images more sophisticated because you've so already solved the bigger problems. Does the story work? Because as you know, you write the script, 
you make the movie what five times, right? You write yeah, the script, yeah. you 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 shoot it, you edit it, and every, each time it's a surprise. You're like going, "Is this what I'm making?" But I kind of did all of that process privately uh, without financing, and it was a it's a great way to work. I gotta say, because you write something and it and you don't you, you don't really know if it works until it's on the screen you don't yeah. you don't know and the way the, the what's nice about being able to storyboard and do your own stuff and do your own voices even temporarily scratch voices is that you kind of get to see if it plays and does it play and you you know immediately when it doesn't and then you rewrite as you board and so you're kind of it's this fluid process of actually making the movie and writing simultaneously, which I don't, I, I don't, I don't know anybody who does that except for myself, but, and I don't know if it's the best way to work. <laughs> it's uh, it's how I work and it's, it's actually turned into a, a good process for me to get even things financed. Well, th- it's such a fascinating, it's a fascinating process. I, I, I are you, are you essentially, um, doing it simultaneously, like in your mind, because I love this idea that you're talking about where the storyboards are essentially you kind of processing your story out because you have the ability because you can draw. Like if I did it, my problem would be my drawings would would make things worse. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, my, I, I, my, stick, I, my stick figures, I'd be like, wow. Um, but for you, um, is it almost like a simultaneous process? So yeah. as you're thinking of a character and you're thinking of, and I don't know, I'd be curious, we can get into this a little bit. Like, do you tend to think more character? Do you tend to think more plot? Like, I'm just curious how maybe where ideas maybe germinate with you primarily, but, um, and how you develop them. But um, in a sense, as they're coming to you, do you sit down and, and instead of just maybe necessarily typing things out, you're, you're sketching, you're drawing, you're, and typing things out like you're kind of doing things simultaneously it depends on it depends on if i'm working for somebody else or if i'm working for myself uh if i if i'm hired to write a script obviously i'm hired to write a script and it helps it helps in the sense that you're playing obviously when you're writing you need to be thinking about what people are seeing when you're writing a screenplay now thinking about right you're not writing a book you're writing a movie and so you're basically giving people almost like haiku. Uh, so you're giving people just little shots of narrative just so that it'll put images in their head. And so it helps in that regard. Uh, but when I'm doing something for myself, yes, because you know how it is. You you write, some, we overwrite things. We overwrite dialogue. Often the actors will tell you if you write something, and I had this happen on even in Mosley when I was working with John Reese Davies and all these other uh, actors is that you're going, uh, I can accomplish what that line is trying to accomplish through a look, just a look at the actor, some bit of uncertainty or some nuance in his face that communicates a bazillion more things than a line could. Right. And you usually don't in a live action setting, you usually don't discover that until you're on set people are reading your lines and the actor probably would say, you know what? I think I can just do that with my, I think I can communicate that with a look, you know, and that's fantastic. And usually that collaborative process at a live action scenario is wonderful. And you do pare down the script quite a bit 
because the actor is able to do more than than you you fundamentally could imagine when you were writing. Animation is all reverse engineering of that because you you are basically making the movie before any actor has you you do scratch track you do scratch temporary voices they usually cast an animated movie after the animatic has been produced with scratch voices and scratch performances right and so if there is a meaningful moment that is just show not tell and and the actor or a look or some camera move slight push in or these things these all the tools of the trade will communicate a, a million more things you can factor that in or I factor that in as I'm writing because I'm like going you know what it would be damn cool if if the camera just pushed in a little bit and you saw that that guy was reconsidering his choice and uh you can write that and I think there's a there there are ways to effectively write that into a script but it's more fun (laughs) to actually just make the shot just make the shot Right. And in animation, you can do that. We call it. We call them eye darts, which are basically, you know, you get close in on a, on an actor or character and you can see just the eye darts, just the smallest things will communicate so much. And you can do that in an animatic. You can do that to where uh, it's pared down before you start spending a hell of a lot of money because it costs a lot of money to make these things. And if you solve those problems before you start spending the big money, then you really can pay attention to just nuance and you've solved your bigger problems before you go into production. So could you explain to the audience and by audience, I mean me (laughs) (laughs) audience probably knows better, but, um, Uh, so obviously I think I, I know what 2d animation is versus 3d animation, but so I guess what I'm curious about is for you, you know, it, for me to use the term animator, um, what does that mean? Like, so let's take Mosley, for example, did you literally have everything on your computer and did you create every single image? Did you create it, uh, a 2D version and then go into the computer. I'd love for you to kind of walk us, maybe the the uninitiated, through the process of animating uh, Mosley, animating a computer animated film. Like, wh- wh- what did you do to animate Mosley? Sure. So it it it's like any other movie up to a point. You write the script. The script's got to work. You put it on. You, this is the thing: is I know I know people storyboard live action films but they don't storyboard perhaps every moment in a live action film. You storyboard the more complex sequences and all these other sorts of things. But there is no go to the set moment in an animated film. Everything is made, everything is built, everything is created from nothing, from scratch. And so you have to build, uh, and with CGI, these things are not drawings, but they're uh, puppets basically in the computer that are, uh, and the puppeteer is the animator and they keyframe uh, on a timeline, basically the movement and they can move the virtual puppet in, uh, in a program, usually Maya. And, uh, and that's how, that's how the shot comes together. So it's, 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 uh, but you'll, yeah, you'll go through a process where you have storyboards 
then the storyboards go into what's called layout, which you have, uh, or uh, even in live action films, the big Marvel films, they'll call it previs to where you have some rudimentary 3D objects in the computer and you're moving the camera around just to plan the shot. And then you replace, and once the cameras are locked, uh, you put the actual puppet in the uh, into the shot itself, and then it's handed to the animator who does actually does most of the acting. <laughs> and uh, you get like when you and when you say that you're referring to facial expression, the um, eyes, the the movement, the the basically like blocking the the blocking the the characters and the scene, things like that. Absolutely. And so for Mosley, I pretty much cut the entire film together, uh, drawing my own storyboards and actually doing all the voices and uh, me and my daughter. And uh, then after the film was financed and we got into casting, uh, I found out I had John Reese davies who's in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Lord of the Rings and all the great Kiwi actors. We had Lucy Lawless, uh, Reese Darby, Tamira Morrison, who's Boba Fett now and, and, and Book of Boba Fett on uh, Disney Plus, and uh, and I suddenly knew what voices were going to be attached to these characters. So I go back and I do a rewrite of the script now with those voices in my head because I'm like going I, on this day, John Reese Davies is going to be in the studio and I'm going to be recording him, and now I need to hear his voice saying my line, and. So you obviously make adjustments because you're going, now I know the temperament of this, of this, of his usual uh, shtick that he does and how that'll contrast, contrast with Reese Darby. And so you, you end up rewriting just with the, with those kind of voices in mind. And again, you make the movie several times in that regard. Uh, you recut the animatic with those voices. Then that, then the shot with that audio track of the final performance is given to the animator. All the animator has is the acting or is the voice performance, right? Maybe some reference uh, in the studio when uh, some camera reference of just to see what the actor did. But in general, the animator creates uh, or co-creates that performance, uh, deciding when the eyebrow lifts, deciding when the blink happens it to Everything in that performance, I mean, I, you could think of, uh, you know, there's great moments like this in Mosley, but you could think of these great Pixar uh, movies where, you know, a character go undergoes this emotional change. And usually those things, are sometimes there's a voice attached to it. Sometimes there's a piece of dialogue attached to that moment, but sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's the, when the character's quiet and they're thinking and they make a change emotionally, and it's a non-dialogue driven shot. And that animator is responsible for all the nuance that happens on that face and all the subtleties. Uh, they And it has to be believable and it has to be, and so that is a huge art form. It's a huge talent. And so any, uh, any animator who's ever had to do, and I was typecast for these things when I was animating at Weta, and places like that, uh, I, I animated for the, uh, the one of the chipmunk movies, those hybrid movies with hybrid CGI characters and and uh, and live action. And I was typecast. They always gave me the character is about to cry shot, right? 
And uh, so you animate just the smallest things, you know, you got to get in there and that there's a bit of a tremble perhaps in the face before the tear races down and all these other sorts of things. That is all the art of animation. And it is, it's, it's an amazing, that's why these things take so long. You know, these films take so long. So for Mosley, um, and we'll get into the story of Mosley in a little bit and we'll kind of talk about all that, but just still kind of on the technical side of things. Sure. Um, once you got your financing in place, you got your, 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 um, your voice actors and everything. Um, you then hire basically a, a team of animators who are going to work with you as the director. Um, what is it like to direct uh, those animators kind of uh, walk us through what, what is it? Cause you know, I think everyone knows at least who listens to this podcast knows what a director does on a live set. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, so the, you've already, you've already directed and worked with the actors, their voices are recorded. So now what's the day-to-day like um, working with an animator? And then also, could you explain the cinematography of Mosley, if you will, like how that works with animation? Sure. So uh, the, uh, as far as working with the animators, I worked with uh, on Mosley. I had my core group of animators that was in New Zealand, and my animation supervisor, who was Manuel Aparicio, who's from Disney, worked on Moana and all those things. And he's generally in charge of the animation. But as the director, I mean, they're all waiting. The director is decides what's happening. If the director doesn't know what's happening, nobody else knows what's happening. And so I'm the storyteller. And so I literally have, I literally gather the animate animators into a room. We'll go over the sequence shot by shot. And I'll say, and, and there's mechanics that needs to happen. He needs to pick up the apple. He needs to take a bite and he needs to put the apple down. There are certain things that need to happen mechanically in the shot. And then we need to have continuity. The apple, when he puts it down, is over here. So by the next shot, we need to make sure that apple's over there. Then he picks up the apple four shots later and he throws it into the woods. There's So that's, that's the mechanic. Then he goes from A to B. Those sort of things happen. But that doesn't give you the underlying emotional thing that's happening. So you end up, you talk about mechanically what happens which it would be staging you know just uh in any sort of live action film but then you get into the motivation and what's happening emotionally inside the character every character moves differently every character has a different body language right some characters are excitable and their their bodies are are constantly moving other characters are very stoic and still and most of it's happening on the face if everybody moves the same, it's uh, it, it it it's too much, right? You want to feel like each character is individual, so you really get down deep into what's motivating them. But I, we literally will, uh, and I had I also had a remote crew of animators in China and Singapore, and for them, I would do the same thing. I would pitch what needs what needed to happen. I would usually have a translator. Uh, who was working with me uh, on remotely, but I would literally sometimes just, I would literally say, all right, so we're close on the face. I know you, you know, we don't have video here, but we're close on the face and I need something as small as this. That's all I need. Right. And, and I would, and they would look at my video. I would literally just act it in front of the camera, uh, just a, a moment. And then they would, 
see that's what needs to happen. We can't, if, if, the, if the shot is framed like this, the character can't be doing this, right? Everything is happening in the face, right? And so they'll have, so as a, as a director and perhaps, and I know this isn't the case, certainly with uh, the live action film, the director doesn't act out <laughs> anything. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, might not, that, that might not go so well in a live on a live <laughs> It film. would not go well, but, <laughs> but you, but you better be able to do some of that in, in an animated film because you really, uh, you got the audio performance of the actor or the celebrity or whoever, and you've got, you know, maybe 40% of the performance you got, you still got so much more to do. And, and, yeah, and that, that's, that. that's what's so fascinating about animation um, to me is that it's like you have this performance from the, the voice actor, but you also, I like the way you said, it's a CGI, it's basically puppets. So you have this performance by the puppeteer, which exactly. is the animator. And so as the director, you're having to navigate all those things and basically kind of orchestrate performances, kind of combine combine these um, all these different um, uh, attributes well, imagine, into one performance. Imagine being a puppet, imagine being Jim Henson, right? And you're doing your own voice and Kermit. But if you're animating, you're doing the movement, but you didn't do the voice. So, so you end up practicing, you end up doing things, trying this thing, trying that thing to work with that voice and, and get the best performance. The, all, the other thing too, is in editorial, you slide, you slide things around. You, you, I, I've always wanted to get sort of an Altman, Altman-esque kind of uh, t- people talking over each other, which you don't see a lot in animation. And, but it feels natural. And uh, here's another thing is that uh, usually in these animated films, you have these big celebrities that are involved and getting all these people in the same room is generally doesn't happen. They usually record their dialogue sometimes weeks apart from each other and they never even are in the room with each other. And you can tell, I mean, you can really tell, uh, uh, when when that is the case, and so with Mosley, I was I wanted everybody in the same room, and uh, and so it was actually an effort to in scheduling to get Reese Darby and John Reese Davies and and myself in the room at the same time. So I'm acting with them in uh, the movie and directing them, and uh, and I want every there's juice obviously when when people are reacting to each other, I, you give your line, I react to what you've just done. And, uh, and with animation people, it's such a segmented sort of discipline that the executives tend to think, well, we've got Julia Roberts and then we've got Brad Pitt and we can get Brad Pitt in the studio this time. We can get Julia Roberts in the studio this time. There's no need for them to be together. But no, there is a need for them to be together because the more because you're reverse engineering what would be a genuine moment and and in animation, you reverse engineer all that. But the more the more you can get that is spontaneous, that is actual juicy reactions, one actor working off another actor, the more you can capture that, obviously, uh, the, the, be- the better, uh, you know, a performance is going to be. Yeah, and that was actually where uh, segue here, but that was actually where 
what how my daughter ended up in the movie is uh, because when I was cutting the animatic together before there was any financing, I needed a voice for this little character, Rue. Uh, and so, and I couldn't do it myself when I acted like a kid myself on, on my own track. It was horrible. <laughs> so my daughter was sick. She knew this world. I mean, she was drawing the characters with me in my office. It was just part of her life. Right. And so I said, let's get on the floor with a microphone and let's play the sequence out. And she was born ready to do that. She wasn't acting. She was just playing in the most unselfconscious way that a kid can be at home playing. And I got it. I captured it the, in, in the recording. Me and her just, she's riffing, man. She's like, <laughs> she's like Robin Williams. It's, like, it's improv with a six-year-old. And she, she knows the story left and right. And she, she doesn't divert from the story but she'll do these little asides and they're just fantastic. They're just, they're unbelievable. And, uh, and so I put that, that's when the movie really started to come to life. And so I put all that in there with her gen more than genuine performance. And suddenly uh, the whole thing started to the, the, the characters really started to come together because of, uh, of her performance. By the time it was time to cast the film with, you know, superstars, they, I handed over the audio of this moment with my daughter and it was obviously full of noise and, and she couldn't sit still. You could hear her clothes <laughs> moving and all this other kind of stuff. And you could hear the floorboards creaking underneath us. And, uh, this, this audio track was 15 years old at the point when we started. So my daughter, wow. By the time we started production on Mosley, genuine physical production, my daughter was a senior in high school and she was six years old when she recorded that dialogue. Well, can we, let's, let's play it. So yeah, yeah. You, you, you gave me, here's a, this is um, your six-year-old daughter. Yeah. Um, you're, this is you recording her for the role of the little kid in the film. Yeah. And we'll, which we'll talk about later. And this is like some some outtake. So so let's take a listen. That was good, Leah. Let's do it one more time. I remembered. Yeah, let's do it one more time. Papa, you ready, Yona? Come on, let's go, big guy. Papa, Papa, are you ready to go now? Are you ready to go now? Come on. Papa, do you know what I would do if I had hands? Good. That'll work. What well, do you which think? Which part is your favorite? Uh, well, let's see what happened. Let's hear them all first. So let's do just each it. time. Tell me the, your favorite. Okay. And now this is when you say, and look what they do with their hands. That one over there is playing a flute and that one over there is smoking a pipe. So you're laughing. <laughs> look at, look at them. That, and look what they do. With their hands. Look at what they can do. That one's. <laughs> playing a flute and that one smoking a funny old pipe like Simon Simon does with his funny old corn cob pipe made of corn and leaves and I like to pick pick leaves off okay. when he doesn't even uh, see me. All right, now let's do let's do that one more time and laugh and say, look at what they're doing with their hands. That one over there is playing a flute and that one's smoking a pipe. <laughs> that one over there is playing a flute. And that one over there smoking a pipe. 
Great, Leah. That was good. Which one did you like the best? I think that last one was good. She has one of the most adorable voices, by the way. Like I, I love her voice. I absolutely love it. Well, it's 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 unbelievable because you could tell, you know, if if I had put her in a sound studio, yeah, with a bunch of technicians and a yeah. bunch of equipment, she would not have done that. Yeah. She would not have been able to perform that. And we actually did, you know, when she was 17, she sounded sort of similar. I was lucky that she was a girl because her voice didn't change, right? <laughs> not not so much. It did change, but not so much. Like my son's voice, you know, you know how right. it is. It bottomed right. out. But she, uh, so we did some, you know, efforts and some breaths and some things like that when we were in New Zealand and recorded. Uh, but uh, and she was obviously a different person then and, and self-conscious and and in a way that she, it, 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 but they, nobody wanted to recast that part because despite, right. and so the, the, the audio geniuses and at our post-production facility cleaned up the audio, made it sound just as good as anything that was professionally done. And then, uh, and then oddly enough, it was Harvey Weinstein being believe this. Oh boy. Oh boy. Now, here we go. <laughs> Because we were going to distribute the film via the the Weinstein company at the beginning, and so it uh, and before everything there went to hell. But uh, the but it was what I was told. It was that it was Harvey Weinstein who said, "Who is that kid?" And just like we got to keep that performance in there. And then then he said, "And who's the guy with her?" And he said, "Well, that's her dad and the director of the film." We said, "Well, let's keep him too." And so that's how I got to play Mosley. And uh, uh, because otherwise we were going to cast it with Carl Urban or some uh, great Kiwi actor or something like that. But I got to, because the juice was there, you could feel the relationship uh, between us in, in the movie and that, that exact performance as it existed on the living room floor uh, back in the day is the exact performance you'll hear in the movie. That is so, that is so cool. I that love weird? that. I love that story. So it's, so not only is this, this amazing film, this labor of love that you work so long, so hard on, uh, but you and your own daughter are performing in it. And which makes sense by the way, because I'm looking at you and you do have a voice, you do have a face for radio. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm, just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, one of the things I um, really loved about the film is actually you guys. So it's, it's fun to hear that side of the story, because one of the things I think when people watch this film, I think they'll, they'll, it'll speak to them the same way it spoke to me, which is there is such, there is, there is um, a real tenderness to the family scenes. There's a real, it, it comes across in such a beautiful way. And the fact that it's an actual father and daughter working together um, makes a, makes a lot of sense. So bravo. Well done. Well, thank you. It's, it ended up being a time capsule for our family too. Cause by the time we finished the film, we had sent the kids off to college. My wife and I were empty nesters. And yet here's this movie that is almost like a home movie for us because wow. it's, it's incredibly personal in that, in that regard. I mean, we, we listened to that and we we're listening to ourselves, you know, and it, yeah, it's, it, it was fantastic. And I, you know, my wife asked me and people asked me, so what do you do next? 
after that. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you can't, whatever I do next, it's not going to be, right. it's not going to be like that. You know, I mean, yeah. I can't have another kid and put them in the, <laughs> you, <laughs> you just, you only have one life to do something like that. in. I, I yeah. think the film is being released in December um, in theaters and on video on demand. That's right. That's right. So it'll be December 10th in uh, select cities and cinemas. And then, it, but it'll be available for streaming on Paramount plus, I think four days later. So December 14th, it will, anybody can watch it on Paramount plus. And uh, apparently I've noticed that the DVD will will also be released on December 14th. Uh, oh, very cool. Okay. You can already pre-order it, which is cool. Which is cool. Um, so that, so the film will finally be made available to everyone in December of 2021. Yeah. When did you start working on the film? <laughs> well, because I think this is the part that's going to blow people's minds. Yeah. So my daughter was born in 97 and I began storyboarding and writing the movie in 98. Wow. So uh, I, and I was writing other movies. I was directing TV. I was animating here and there. And so I was always doing other people's stuff, but I was always looking for a moment to steal away and work on my own movie. And that really just meant that I would steal away and get and draw some more storyboards and make another sequence until over the years. And that's what, it, by the time Leah was six, I'm like, when well, I really need a kid. And I'm like, well, I got a kid. How, how convenient is that? Right. I got a kid. She knows the story. She knows all the, she knows the lines and uh, she can make up her own lines if, uh, or she would make the lines better, you know, ad libbing. And, uh, and so, yeah, so she's, she's six years old. We record it. I, I have that audio and I keep making sequences. We get to a moment to where that don't, you remember the last, the last fight in the movie. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, I do remember thinking this, I remember thinking, I want this fight to feel like a fight where people could get hurt. Not like in a cartoon movie. Mm-hmm. I want I want people to forget they're watching a, an animated film. I want it to feel like you're actually scared that somebody's going to get hurt. And uh, which, you know, doesn't usually happen with these animated films because you're sort of aware that the physics are can be exaggerated and everything else. No, I think you I think you I think you accomplished that. I I I remember I remember the scene. I actually remember having some similar thoughts watching. Yeah. And I don't know why animation animation can't do this again. I I wasn't thinking about it in terms of I want to make animation. I wanted to make. I wanted to tell the story. Animation was just the way I was doing it. Yeah. Brad Bird says it really well. He says animation is not a genre. Uh, animation is uh, is an artistic choice to tell the story via that medium. Yeah. You can tell any genre story in animation, yep. and so uh, it doesn't. You know, and I, usually the larger studios and everybody want to skew all animation to kids or or whatever but and this is definitely a family film there's no doubt about it it's a family film but it's a family film sort of in the way that i re- this the stories that i remember that were family films that really stuck with me were things like the black stallion never ending story i remember a never ending story when this horse drowns in the swamp 
Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, just that just marked me. I was just mm-hmm. like, God. And so family films can have teeth to them. They can have weight to them. They don't have to be fart jokes and crap like that all the time. There's no, in fact, when you're a kid, that's the time the movies that mark you really stick with you as you see something and it, it affects you in a profound way, you know, and I wanted to make one of those movies and animation was just the means to an end to tell that story. Uh, and so I, couldn't get bogged down with the idea that this is animation. So you're supposed to be silly and you're supposed to be whatever. I, uh, animation is about caricature and caricature is about distilling a moment into its essence, sort of like uh, brewed coffee is to espresso. Mm-hmm. And, but, and so people tend to think of caricature as comedy, uh, but you can do caricature and drama too. You can do, it's all about a stylized choice to exaggerate certain things, not necessarily for comedy. You can do it for drama purposes. You can do it. You can go back to the, I mean, go back to the silent film era. I mean, and look at watch, watch modern times with Chaplin or watch the kid or watch Buster Keaton. And um, they're known for their comedic prowess, but those films are also packed with, deeply tender moments that that come out through these amazing pantomime performances yes or, and, uh, or really tense stuff because some scary you can do some scary tense kind of stuff and uh and and animation is a great way to do that and in the sense that you can exaggerate and push things a little bit further than you would be able to and not that art direction and all that doesn't come into play i mean obviously kubrick is uh, kubrick is doing working in caricature i mean if you look at the shining that film is nothing but caricature it's everything is it's like kabuki theater that that film and and with animation you could take it and even jack it up even further to the point that you're it's it's about manipulating an audience to feel things that's all you that's all we're doing it's just as simple as that and so what are your tools and animation is a tool to make it but but the but the but the bedrock idea is that you want you have an audience and you want them to feel something and if that's your best tool then that's the tool you use you know but for me but for me it wasn't just that i loved animation particularly you know so, yeah. so when you set out to get the 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 deal, the financing for this project, um, for Mosley, new you mentioned it earlier, the new New Zealand film and China China film group um, mm-hmm. um, worked together on this, and so you had you had animators in New Zealand, you had animators in China, um, and I think you said one or two other places as well you don't hear a lot about independent animation. I think we're hearing more of it. Like animation, obviously, since the pandemic is, well, even prior, but I mean, I think the animation as an art form is exploding. I think they people saw, well, we can keep people working. We can keep telling stories. We don't have to be in the same room together, things like that. So I think, I think we're probably going to start to see more independent animation. But um, I think because for those of us who grew up on Disney and you know, Warner Brothers Bug Bunny cartoons. That's kind of what we always understood. And um, but the landscape has changed in such a way, but really it comes down to financing. You still have to pay for stuff. 
talk a little bit about that. What was that journey like to try to go out there and hustle just like any other independent filmmaker to get financing for your film? Well, uh, again, I think it has to do, there, there is a, there's an aspect to this to where people are putting, and you know, it's easy to bitch about executives and things like that. And just how myopic they can be about this thing or that thing. But it's a lot of money. I mean, this, this is a, it's a hell of a lot of money. And so if it was my lot of money, I would want certain safeguards too. And, and usually these end up being, they, they look at other films that were successful and they go, uh, they want to repeat the last thing that was successful. That was, that's the, and that is sort of the insurance policy, I think for executives and financers to, uh, to make them feel like they're not throwing their money into a hole. Right. Now there are films and independent animated films. I don't know if you've heard the one Netflix picked it up called I lost my body. Uh, uh, yes. I, I, when I, I, I saw an article or something about, yeah. Yeah. It's about a guy who his hand is cut off and, and the hand and him are separated and the hand is trying to find its way back to its owner. Right? <laughs> so it's an animated film about a severed hand. Right. And that's obviously not a, and it's not a family film. It's, but it's a, such a resonant, wonderful, wonderful movie. And the Miyazaki stuff, everybody talks about that as well, that I'm not a big into anime, but there's no doubt that that breaks all the, uh, the, it, some of that stuff's adult oriented sort of things. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that people tend to think that animation is, uh, is meant for the family audience and, and that sort of thing. So for me, I, I remember uh, thinking I want Mosley, Mosley is a family movie, but I don't want it to feel like every, everything else. I want it to feel, I want it to feel like I, 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 you know, the idea of comic relief is that you have these dramatic moments in this film that are it's just an onslaught of tension. And what is dramatic or com comedic relief? It, it's the moment to break that and get a laugh or something, just to get a, get a bit of relief before the story presses on, right? But most of these animated films, the bigger studio films have, I feel the whole thing is a gag and then they put dramatic relief in there. <laughs> in other words, it's like, it's like the, whole, the whole movie is sort of this one big joke, but then they, but then they want to make you care last minute about the characters. And so they put some meaningful moment in there, but most of the thing is funny. I wanted Mosley to be, I wanted Mosley to be relentless at certain points and not betray those moments by putting a fart in there. Or do some, I wanted certain dramatic moments to play out. So the financing, the, the, obviously the people who were putting up the money some of them no doubt thought that they were just making Zootopia or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, no, we're not making that. And they're, and I'm expecting notes and we want to change your story. So there, there's, there's a couple of things that kind of came together that kept that from being, kept the movie from being hijacked. If somebody's putting money down on your story, they're pretty much going to own it. Right. And so I had to be just very upfront about it, that I was not afraid of this thing not being made. I was afraid of it getting screwed up. And so I wanted to make this movie and it was this movie and it was going to feel like this. 
and not we were not going to just try to repeat the last thing that you saw that made a bazillion dollars so you can make another bazillion dollars, right? And usually there would be a whole lot of pushback from the investors or things like that. But I did have this ace up my sleeve in this regard, and this takes us back to development process and that I had the animatic and the lows were low in the animatic. Things got scary, things got tense, but it, the highs were that much higher because you felt the danger and then you felt the relief when the danger had passed or our hero had overcome it or something. And if you diminish those low, if you bring up the lows because you're scared they're too scary, well, you're diminishing the highs too. And then soon everything's going to taste the same. Everything's just going to be the same. And uh, so that was my argument. And I could have argued all day about it, but I, did, I didn't have to argue because I could just show them the movie. And so in animatic form, so they would see it and they would go, God, I love that. I, oh, it's so intense. When, and then when that happens, that was so great. And so I didn't have to argue with them about it. Uh, because they saw it and they were engaged. Now they did have doubts when they would go, I don't know if I've seen another movie do this before. Can we do this? And I'm like, I would ask just a simple question. Did you like what you saw? Were you engaged in what you saw? Then everybody else will be too. You can trust that. You can, you can trust that, that, but you do have to hold their hand on some level because and, and I don't necessarily despise them for that or see them as numbskulls for that. They're not the artists. They're the financers. You can't yeah. expect them to have the artist mentality. But it is the artist's job to be able, if, that is, if this is the medium you're in, you want to tell stories that cost millions of dollars, then you're going to have to learn to communicate how, you're going to have to learn how to communicate how this can work in their terms so that they see it, even if it, even if they've never seen it before in another film, that that doesn't necessarily, that excites them. It doesn't cause them to have second thoughts because they can get excited about the fact that they've never seen anything like this before in another movie. That could be exciting for them because they're making the only thing that has done this before, but it could also give them a lot of doubt. Right. And so it, you, if you're directing a movie, if you want to tell stories through film, you you cannot just be the moody artist who everybody needs to leave you alone. You you can't be that way. Nope. It's, you got to be. You got to engage people, and you got to communicate. You have it's your job to communicate what you think this thing can be and why it can be successful. If you can't do that, nobody else is going to do it for you. And if you don't like that, then you need to go write a novel and and where nobody will bug you, and you can be completely autonomous, but it's a collaborative process. And so you have to have mercy on everybody. <laughs> you have to have mercy on the people who are putting the money down because that's a risk on their part. And you have to get, and you also have to stick to your guns. You go, I cannot let you be the final arbiter of taste and judgment just because you are putting money down. I'm the guy who knows what I'm doing and you're the guy who knows what you're doing and I'm going to listen to you and you're going to listen to me. And you got to create that. You got to create a, a way to where people can communicate and trust each other. Yeah, and, we, 
we, we talk about in at, um, in Act One a lot about you know the balance. It, it's called the film business, the movie business, the TV business, and the balance is between those. It's between the words film and business. Like you have to balance both those things and the idea that that investor <clears throat> is essentially the first audience you have to win over. Exactly. So you have to be a great storyteller. And that's, that's your first test. Are you a great storyteller? Can you convince them through story that they can trust you to tell the story to other people? And I'm sure, and you've taken meetings in LA before too, and that you'll go to one meeting and you'll feel like nobody wants this. <laughs> What I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And then you go to the next meeting and they go, they go just bananas over it. And, you're, and you realize mm-hmm. that it is sort of like, like a slot machine. You're just sort of pulling the crank and you don't know what's going to happen next. So there's some people who aren't for, you shouldn't pair up with. And then there are people who, that you should pair up with. But yeah. I think Guillermo del Toro said it this way. And I, I think he's completely right. In order to do this work, to be an artist in this medium, you have to be, have the heart of a poet, be sensitive person, and be sensitive in ways that most people aren't. And you also have to have the resilience of a boxer. So you have to have, usually you don't have those qualities in the same person. Somebody's either got the resilience of a boxer, but uh, and then they're an asshole, or somebody has got the heart of a poet and they're too sensitive for the world. And and neither one of those things are going to, if you're just those, one of those things are going to, you're going to implode. You have to be able to maintain your sensitivity to, to the artistic aspects of what you're trying to do. And this pr- ultra pragmatism toward how is it being perceived? How are people receiving what I'm making? And, and then make adjustments or, or whatever. Know when it's discernment. It's knowing when to dig your heels in and knowing what hills to die on and knowing what hills not to die on. And, and if you can't make those judgments, then you need to find another art form. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be this one. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's such good insight. That's such good wisdom, Kirby. I, I think you're, you're dead on this. It's not for everyone, and it, it, it is it is a difficult, difficult business that requires years and years of being able to take a punch. Yeah, and I, I've, I've often said to, to people that uh, I think Camus has this line where he talks about the gentle indifference of the world. Mm. It's a great line, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. The gentle, the world just really doesn't care whether you want to make anything or not they don't care you know and so you're just going to you're going to hit that so many ways so many times when you're going out there and trying to make something and so the thing i think that keeps because people can get discouraged so quickly because how much rejection can you take right right and and i think the answer is that you better find you you better find your joy in the making of the thing the doing of the thing and not in just these successes, these, these moments where you get the money or these other sorts of things. Cause there are most of the days you aren't getting money or financing your project. So you better find the joy. And just when you're by yourself and you're just making the thing, you bet that better be the, cause that may be all you get. That, yes. may, that may be all you get. And so if you can be happy doing that, then everything else is gravy. But if, 
you're only going to be happy if, if you have successes that come to you nonstop, then I mean, sorry, it's just not going to happen that way. So, Oh, I love that. That's so good. Um, well, let's talk about Mosley. Let's talk about this film. This is a wonderful film. You sent me a screener um, back in January or February to watch it. And I sat down with both my kids. We watched it and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I was so impressed. To be honest, I've had lots of friends make films. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. I've, had I've had lots of friends make films and I have to sit through them and somehow try to find something positive to say about them. And I'll come away going, man, congratulations. You made a film, which, by the way, is true, by the way, I think you should celebrate anytime anybody makes a film because it's so hard. But I, I, I am proud to say uh, to my audience, <laughs> I did not have to um, to strain too hard to find compliments about this film it is a wonderful wonderful film i highly recommend it it is a it is exactly as you put it It is a family film it's perfect for kids to watch um but it isn't um saccharine sweet it, it, it is um there is an intensity that was the word that i kept thinking of is there there was an intensity level there were two things that stuck out to me uh about your film one is um, there were these key moments where there was like an intensity level that that was ratcheted up that I that I genuinely felt like boy there's there's real there's real danger there's real, there's real stakes here like there's real there's real genuine stakes here. But the other thing is the story itself, my friend. Congratulations, you told an original story. I I'm so uh, impressed by just the the freshness of this story. So. Let's 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 um, if we can. Can you just uh, pitch the story? What what um, for our audience? What is what is the film Mosley about? Well, it's it's about it's a fictitious past, and we have creatures called Thorophants who are beasts of burden that uh, pull plows and and basically are work animals. And so, if you're a farmer, you can have a horse pull your plow or an ox pull your plow. But the thing about these Thorfins is that not only do they have this brute strength, uh, they're these four-footed creatures that can do just about any kind of work like that, but they're also, they can talk, which none of the other animals in this world can talk. And so, uh, so the relationship is more of a slave-master relationship than an animal-master relationship. So Mosley is one of these Thorfins. He works for this cruel farmer on some isolated farm. He has a small family, they live in a barn. And one day his small son discovers a cave that has in the cave, there are drawings of creatures just like themselves, Thorfins, gigantic drawings. Only these don't walk on all fours. These stand upright and they have hands. And the question is, the mystery is, is this what we used to be and what happened? What did, what happened to make us what we are? Do these uprights exist and can we find them? And, uh, and it ends up being an allegory for all kinds of things, but the, the basic idea is, is, is devolution. And what if, what if you couldn't evolve as far as your heart was meant to go? And all the longing that is involved in something like that, I you know it. 
the germ of the idea came from a real silly place because I remember when I was a kid and I was drawing and doing all the things we were talking about, I was so aware that of the, of the fact that there's Mickey mouse, right. And he has a pet Pluto who's a dog, but then he also has a next door neighbor who's also a dog goofy, but he wears clothes and has a mortgage, right? A sports. And I, yeah. and I was always like, what the hell happened to Pluto? <laughs> No, it's like what I, it always felt and it's hysterical, but it's also sort of tragic the the back about the idea of, uh, of, of devolution of the fact that you were meant to be something wonderful and somewhere in your history, you, it was lost, you've lost it. And, uh, and, and then, but that works like fairy tales are, are amazing because we, end up reading our fairy tales are different than any other sort of story in the sense that you can't help, but read your own life into the story. And it becomes a metaphor for you in some weird, mysterious way. So if you're watching all the president's men with Dustin Hoffman and, you know, uh, Robert Redford, that story is about what that story is about. It's not, that's just, it's Watergate, all that fairy tales. People can't help themselves. They end up seeing what they're seeing, seeing what they're seeing as a metaphor for it could be anything. And they, 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 what, what was I meant to be that I somehow lost? And what, what do I have to do to get that back? You know? And, uh, and so that's generally what the move, that's the general thrust of the film is, and there's all sorts of mysteries to be uncovered in that regard but hands end up being a, a huge part of this is, is you realize what, uh, what a gift it is to, to, I mean, there are certain things that we would grow accustomed to wonders. I think we go bored with wonders, right. But something as wonderful as, as just being able to pick up things and manipulate your world. And, and it, it, so the idea is to make what is ordinary to us, uh, to enchant it again and make you realize how wonderful it is that, that to be able to do things that, uh, that, that you can do and just, and sort of re-enchanting the world somewhat. I, I, I love Tolkien in this regard and that when you, when I first read Lord of the Rings and I got to the part of the Ents and Treebeard, I could never look at a tree the same way again, you know, because you're, you're sort of aware of the life of a tree and what would the life of a tree be like and what would it mean to be hasty if you're a tree and all these other sorts of things. And this, in the same way, I think Mosley does similar, but with other things. So like you're sort of aware of, of how wonderful it is to have hands and to be able to doodle and, and do things with those hands. And it's just the idea of re-enchanting normal life and making you realize how uh wonderful normal life is and family life as well so it's it's a long explanation to what the movie's about but there it is <laughs> no but it, it's a there's a lot there that that's the thing too that i think people will be pleasantly surprised with um your kids your younger kids will enjoy the animation it's it's funny you've got a great cast reese darby john reese davies like you said boba fett tamura morrison lucy lawless like you've got a um, some guy named Kirby Atkins. Uh, you've got you've you've got this uh, wonderful uh, 
cast. It's very colorful. It's uh, it's energetic. So, you know, obviously the younger kids will be able to track with all the, but, but I do think that the older kids and the parents will be able to see there's a little bit more going on. And that's what I, that's kind of my kudos to you is that um, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of allegorical content, you know, uh, there, um, you touch on, you do touch on things like slavery. You do touch on things like um, uh, uh, individuals, um, you know, in their own struggle uh, versus uh, collectivism, you know, like you, you deal with community, you deal with um, this idea of, of um, can we truly become, can we truly transcend and become more than, than what our, our, our current station uh, affords us or allows us. And um there's just some there's you just touch on some really you just touch on some really nice things and i and i can't be more happy and excited uh for you for this film to finally come out this this incredible 24 year 23 year journey <laughs> that started with you doodling right you love it when i say it that way don't you <laughs> but yeah, your it, daughter your daughter is in is she in college now she is actually working on her master's degree now She's working her master's degree and she laid down the tracks for the her boys. six her six-year-old. I just tell her her, her six-year-old version of herself uh is is just about to come into the spotlight. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be huge. <laughs> She's gonna be huge. That's so funny. I um I love that. I love um just um there's so many wonderful things about this film, and I just want to make sure people get a chance to see it, they get out there. Um, so once again. The film is going to be playing in select theaters in select cities around the country um, beginning December 10th. And the film is called Mosley. And uh, and then if you can't get out to a theater, which I hope you can, but if you can't, uh, Paramount Plus and also DVD Blu-rays available December 14th. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, this is I've had a fantastic time talking. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great catching up with you, man. And uh, I hope we get to see each other in person here uh, pretty soon at some point. Well, so. dinner dinner's on me. Maybe we'll right. maybe we'll maybe we'll get a couple of our mutual friends to that would be uh, to yeah. join us. But thanks again for being thanks uh, willing to to talk to me. Um, what we like to do at Act One is we always like to close by praying for our speakers. Would you allow me to to say a prayer for you? Absolutely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for Kirby. Thank you for his creativity. Thank you for his passion. Thank you for his resilience. Um, thank you for how you've uniquely crafted and created him to create such wonderful uh, stories and films. And, um, and God, I just uh, pray that as many people as they can would see Mosley and that it would be a success. And um, it would uh, not only just entertain, but would uh, cause its audience to pause and to think and to question and to wonder and to dream. And, uh, and God, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to be able to talk. Just want to pray a blessing uh, upon Kirby and his career, um, but especially his family, uh, his wife and kids. Um, uh, obviously, they're in a different life stage, as he mentioned, as when they first started this film. Um, but how exciting it is at the same time to be able to look at this film as, as like he said, almost like a, a family home movie. Um, and so just uh, pray a blessing upon his family and everything he does. And uh, we just thank you for this time. And we just uh, pray this in Jesus name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the act one podcast. 
Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com. Mm-hmm.